Welcome to another episode of the Corporate Pilot Guys podcast. If you're new to this podcast, I'm Tim. I'm from the United States. I have been a corporate pilot for approximately 19 years now. And Rob, the other host, who is from Canada, Rob, tell us a little bit about yourself and your flight experience. Absolutely, Tim. Uh, I've been flying um, actively as a uh, corporate pilot for the last 10 years or so. I was an airline pilot for that. Uh, before that, I was up in the Arctic of Canada. Did a lot of flying up there in ATR 42s and the Boeing 737 200. Before that, way back in 1989, I was a glider pilot. How do you like gliders compared to? Do you miss flying gliders? How about I that? I really, I really, really do. Um, the, you know, gliding for me was air cadets and the Royal Canadian Air Cadets in Canada is a huge thing, kind of like Civil Air Patrol in the U.S. And um, you know, it was, it was, it was a really great time. I miss the actual gliding from the relaxation point of view. Um, I've had eagles fly beside me in flight, which is pretty amazing. And just a very, very different, very relaxing type of flying. So we've been doing this podcast for this format, and we've had an episode every two weeks for about the last five months. And we're up to about, what, 18 episodes now? That's about right, yeah. So if you are new to the podcast, you can go through on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and look at the old episodes. There might be something in there that pertains to you. We've interviewed an airline pilot, so if you are interested in the airlines and want to know what it's like going from the application process to actually interviewing, getting the job, and flying the line, we did an interview with Chris, who was a flight instructor, and he flew um, private jets for a very short time, and then he went out to the airlines. He details the whole thing, and it's over an hour long, but very, very informative. So if that's a career path you're looking for, that's a good episode uh, to listen to. How can people help the podcast out to help it grow? Well, depending on which platform you are um, listening to us on, and there, you know, there's many. There's um, Apple Podcasts, for example. If you're if you're on Apple Podcasts, um, we'd love it if you would give us a five star review. It really, really helps the podcast grow. And if you're on Spotify, you can leave a um, a uh, note on there. I'm not exactly sure if there's a, a rating system on there, but if there is, please leave us a five-star review. I'd greatly, greatly appreciate it and help us grow. Yeah, and also if you have friends that are into aviation or even people that want to learn to fly, send them a link. We would very much appreciate it. We spent a lot of time and effort making these podcasts and it it's nice to see it grow. So Definitely. anything you can do to help us, we would very much appreciate it. But- don't feel obligated to do it, but if you want to, it would be very much appreciated. What is this episode going to be about today? We're going to be talking about a stabilized approach and landing, also known as just the stabilized approach. And what is your definition of a stabilized approach? Well, um, there's many different definitions, but mine's really, um, I'm completely ready for the approach, so I've got my landing gears down, my flaps down, the checklists are completed. We are ready to uh, commence the approach. I'm not going too fast, so my VREF is uh, not above 10 or 20. That Depending on which company you are, that could change. Or my VREF is not below zero, which that would be not good at all. Yeah, I mean, um, your speed's not below ref. Yeah, not below ref. So we never want to go below ref um, until we're 50 feet above the 
the runway and then we're safe to be at ref at that point. Uh, not exceeding below a um, thousand feet a minute descent rate. And um, we want to be what we call stabilized, have all these things that we're talking about completed before a thousand feet in instrument meteorological conditions, IMC, or 500 feet VMC. Right. And I'll move that or add one note to that. If I'm flying an approach and IMC, I'm going to be fully configured, meaning gear down, full flaps, and my speed's going to be ref plus 10 or greater prior to glide slope intercept or just at glide slope intercept um, as well. Because when you're doing an ILS approach, following the glide slope down, the last thing in the world you want to do when you're trying to maintain a constant angle of descent is change configuration because what would happen if you put flaps in when you're on a ILS approach? Our airplane, the Challenger 605 and the 650 has a radical change in pitch at flaps 45. So when we go from flaps 30, Tim, to flaps 45, we have a very noticeable nose down pitch. So if you've ever been in a CRJ 200 aircraft and you're on final approach and they put that last set of flaps in, you'll know what I'm talking about. If you do that though, it changes the deck angle of the aircraft. Um, it changes, you know, you have to increase um, thrust. There's all these different things. So if you do that late in the game, we will then be what we call unstabilized. And it also increases the pilot workload to do that. Definitely. A minute ago when I was talking about doing an ILS approach, before the, or around the final approach fix with full flaps in, the checklist is com pretty much completed by that point. All you're doing is flying a steady speed, indicated airspeed, and following the glide slope and localizer down to the runway. And when you're doing that and the airplane's set up and trimmed, you don't have to do a whole lot. It's just easy. You're just watching, and that's all you need to be doing. Yeah, so that, that's the whole concept of a stabilized approach. You're, you're stable. You're maintaining a constant rate of descent. Not necessarily a constant rate of descent, but a constant descent angle, like flying on a glide slope. Backing up from even doing an ILS approach, what if we're on a visual approach and we're too high? Mm. What could happen in the event that we're too high, but we say, okay, we've got to make this runway, we're going to get down. What can end up happening? Well, jets don't like to go down and slow down. They don't like that at all. So, I mean, there's different techniques where you can, you know, get the, the spoilers or speed brakes in and all that. So basically what's going to happen is you're going to overspeed. Um, you're going to increase possibly a rate above a thousand feet a minute, which is not something you want to do unless you brief it. Um, yeah, you become unstable. Yeah, you become unstable and you could also more than likely if you're high and you're descending to get down to where you should be, you're going to have a higher than normal approach speed. And the landing numbers we get in our FMS and the AFM, those numbers are predicated on a specific ref speed. So if you're coming in a lot faster, and this applies to small airplanes as well, you're going to come in a lot faster. Your landing distance is going to be far greater than the published number. So one of the things you may want to think about is if you're doing an ILS approach, and basically that's a three to one descent ratio kind of thing, that's typically like six, 700 feet a minute. But how we actually could help ourselves calculate that is take your current ground speed divided by two and add a zero and that's going to give you a rough idea of how many feet per minute you should be on the glide slope. What's the other method, Tim? 
talk about what you said. Here's an example of it. So if you're doing it, if you have a ground speed of 140 knots, basically the 140 divided by two is 70 at a zero. Your rated ascent to maintain a three degree glide path is uh, 700 feet per minute. Another way to do it is to multiply your ground speed by five. You get the same answer, but higher speeds, I find dividing by two and adding a zero is easier than trying to multiply 140 times five, but that's just me. Whatever way works, and those numbers aren't exact for a 3 degree glide path, but they are very close, and it gives you a good aiming point. Yes, absolutely. So that kind of covers off, um, you know, what we would consider to be a stabilized approach and landing. Um, if you, there's many different uh, things that you could look at. If you were to head over to Skybrary, they've got a completely different, um, more concise, stabilized approach description. And it's kind of more airline driven, that kind of thing. But I think we've covered off the main points there, Tim. Um, basically, you want to be stabilized by a thousand feet in IMC and 500 um, above airport elevation in VMC conditions. And if not, then you go around. Right. And the go around part is kind of uh, an important thing that we memorize as, as pilots, whether you're in a Cessna 172 or a Diamond or a Challenger or a Gulfstream, it doesn't matter. You're going to have some type of sequence that you remember. And, you know, in the Challenger 605, it's go around, set thrust, flaps 20, pause every gear up. And then we do something called a nav source change and a nav source activation in our flight control panel. And all that's done with two crew. So the go around portion is uh, the, the pilot flying hits the toga button, takeoff go around button, which um, brings up the command bars to 12 degrees. And we pitch up to that. The, uh, the thrust levers are pushed forward and then the other pilot sets them to what what is required flaps 20 is selected and once we see a positive rate of climb then we select the gear up and then the next portion has to do whether you're on an ILS so a localizer based approach or a GPS approach um, if you're on that type of approach in order to allow the aircraft FMS to provide navigation for you, you're going to have to switch from a localizer-based approach over to a GPS approach. I think you call that green needles vert to... Um, Pink needles or... Yeah. Yeah. Green needles. Depending, needles yeah. depending on your aircraft. So nav source change, nav source selection, and then you're going to decide what kind of vertical speed am I going to use and uh, what altitude am I climbing to. So all these right. are really critical things. They should have been briefed in the approach briefing. Yes, and all those things are easy to mess up because when you're doing a missed approach, that is, would you agree that's one of the busiest times in an airplane is when you're when you're doing a missed approach, even if you're prepared for it. It's it's crazy busy. Absolutely. But, um, I, we don't do many of them. That's the no. thing. I mean, I mean, you're in an area where there's, you know, can be some pretty bad weather down down east, we'll call it, and um, or out east, if you will, uh, depending on which Canadianism you'd like to use. Um, <laughs> uh, a lot of bad weather out there. You probably do a lot of missed approaches compared to what I do. I Not really. I would have guessed that you do more than I do. Yeah, not really. We um, do. We go, I mean, we do them at training in the sim. I mean, that's 
all you do, you do an approach and then a whole bunch of missed approaches. I would say you actually land probably two times for every three missed approaches when you're in the SEM at recurrent training, but I do real world missed approaches, I would say one or two a year, but that's what makes them uh, challenging, yes. easy to mess up because we don't do them often, kind of like holds. That's another thing. We go to training, what do we have to do every time? Holding. That's right. Yeah, every single yeah, I'm, time. I'm about the same two, one, one to two per year. Um, you know, we fly into a lot of busy, small airports in the United States. Um, and uh, there's there's you know many reasons why we might need to go around. But I guess the key thing I'm trying to get at is that um, whether you're in a small aircraft, a jet aircraft, a corporate jet, whatever you, whatever you're in, um, you got to know that a that missed approach procedure, it has to be memorized. It has to be familiar with, you have to be familiar with it. So you got to practice it. So I do a lot of, well, I talk to myself. <laughs> I'm <laughs> on the way to work, probably. I'm on the, on the way to work. You're crazy. Yes. And I have shared this on my YouTube channel. I actually show, um, I've, I've recorded all of my memory items that we have and um, and I basically go through all of that on my way to work and one of them happens to be the go-around procedure, which doesn't seem all that complicated from what I just talked about. But if you add in, like if we had a look at um, the Teterboro, New Jersey approach, RNAV GPS Yankee runway 19, the missed approach out of that isn't that complicated, but it's the level off. It's the almost an immediate level off. Climb to 500 feet, then a climbing right turn to Bubgy, cross Bubgy at 1500. And I would bet, Tim, the 1500 is what uh, causes a lot of problems. Yeah, there's airplanes going in and out of Newark, uh, probably right at 2000 feet. And also when you depart out of there, one of the first level offs, if you're departing to the Southwest, is at 1,500 feet. Yes. And people overshoot that altitude a lot, and it causes problems. And they do it most of the time in VFR conditions, not IFR. If you were to check out Rudy Six Departures, maybe the one that you're talking about. It is. It, it's, uh, it's got that immediate level off at 1,500 feet. And now, that may be a little bit, uh, you know, for, for if you're flying a 172, that may be not that big of a deal. But in a jet, it happens very, very quick. And so with that, how, what's, the, what's the big thing you need to manage when you, you know, when you get that go around, set thrust, flaps 20, pause rate, gear up or whatever you have in your aircraft? What do you, what's the big thing you're managing? Uh, power. And then in conjunction with that is air, airspeed also, especially that one, because you have to keep your speed back to 200 knots yes. uh, for the uh, speed limit underneath the class Bravo. That's right. So it's, cool. it is, it's a, it's a busy environment that just that whole airspace, but the departure and if you have to do that, Mr. Approach, it's busy. It takes a lot of crew coordination and crew briefing before you even take off to make sure you're both on the same page with that also serves as a refresher that you know the steps is the person giving the briefing, but also the other person they're checking to see what you're saying possibly, and it will help tie up any loose ends that may exist between the two crew members on what's actually going to happen yes. and what you're going to do if something happens. 
Tim, we talked about stabilized approaches. What if what would you say an unstabilized approach could lead to? Uh, that's a loaded question. It could lead to an <laughs> accident. Yes. Uh, yes. It could lead to going off the end of a runway uh, mm-hmm. if you're coming in too fast. Well, we're going to talk about going off the end of the runway right now. So very recently, um, there was a situation where there's a Gulfstream 150, and I think you're probably pretty familiar with what that is, Tim, hey? I am. I, fl- I, I flew a G100, which is the Astrojet, and then I also currently fly a Gulfstream G200. So I have not flown the 150, but I've flown the airplane before it and after it. Right. So we ha- don't want to get into uh, pointing fingers or anything like that. When neither no. one of us are infallible people, we all make mistakes. We 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 want to learn from um, other people's mistakes, possibly. And in this particular situation, this was an aircraft that was uh, doing something that's pretty unusual. Um, it was coming into an airport with another company aircraft, I believe, and yes. they were racing each other. They were racing each other. They were. The airplane that had the runway excursion was trying to beat the other airplane. And they had the runway excursion because they were coming in too fast. It was an unstabilized approach. Uh, I don't recall the exact speed they were at, but normally on a, during a normal approach and landing, you don't actually hit ref speed until you are 50 feet above the threshold. And that's when you should be at ref. The landing numbers are based on hitting 50 feet above the, or hitting ref 50 feet above the threshold. And then getting down and landing and stopping, that's that, from that 50 feet above the threshold point to your stop, that's the actual landing distance, the number that we're given. So they were, if I remember correctly, they were ref plus, I think it was ref plus 18 when they uh, were over the threshold. And another thing that we, you and I know that happened, the ground air brakes were not armed or turned on. Mm-hmm. Um, so when the ground air brakes don't come up, what they do is they destroy lift. They also create a little bit of, they create downforce. So there's drag being created. There's downforce being created, which helped put more weight on the mains to increase the brake effectiveness. But those were not armed, and that's one more thing that is going to make the landing distance even longer. The thrust reversers, I don't believe the thrust reversers were used, but for dry numbers, the thrust reversers aren't counted in that. That's If you deploy them, that's just bonus. Yeah, it says here that uh, the airplane's wheel brakes, thrust reversers, and ground air brakes did not function after touchdown, but... If you look at the video, you which, I mean, anybody can go check this out. Check out the video. Um, the thrust reversers did deploy after, after touchdown, but there's a bunch of tire skid marks that are very, very evident, and it they were occurring throughout the ground roll. So, I mean, there's many different things that could be contributed there. Maybe the anti-skid was not activated. Um, you know, if... The, if you if you don't get a like a firm touchdown and then the the air brakes pop open, you're not going to get a proper um, 
weight on wheels indication possibly. Mm -hmm. And that could cause many different things to not function properly because the aircraft has to sense wheels spin up. That it's on the and, ground. That, yeah. And that it's on the ground. Yes. So it's on the ground and that there's wheels spin up occurring. And if that doesn't happen, then, you know, the, the things that are supposed to occur, like your spoilers opening or air brakes, whatever they're called in your airplane, um, they may not function. And if you do not get all of those things, you know, happening, you're going to, you, you, you may have a, a, a situation where the airplane just does not want to stop. And I'm pretty sure this is dry pavement. I believe it was on. dry pavement. Yeah. And to get the stuff that you're talking about, you can do that. If you make a very, very smooth touchdown, you can, that will happen where they may not, the ground air brakes, except the weight on wheel switch may not make contact quickly. Right. But once you slow down, yeah, it's going to, but also if the weight on wheel switch is broken and that could cause problems too. You could think, okay, the, here, let me back up. If that happens and you go to turn the ground air brakes on, if that switch is broken, the airplane might think it's on the ground. You turn the ground air brakes on, guess what's going to come up? The ground air brakes are going to deploy. Right. So, so that could happen. But what, so this crew, what could they have, well, one thing they could have done it, to prevent this from happening. Mm -hmm. And like I've said before, I don't want to talk out of turn. We weren't there. We weren't them. We're looking at this from the outside in. Um, we're not immune to making mistakes or doing dumb things. We try hard to be as professional all the time. Definitely. But one thing that I look at this, they could have done. First thing is, is don't race. I know back when I was a flight instructor, at a university, there'd be other airplanes, especially as a young pilot, you did maybe stuff that you shouldn't have done. Mm -hmm. And as you get more experience, you look back and say, I probably shouldn't have done that. Yes. But one thing they could have done, just don't race. Don't race the other airplane. If they get back first, they get back first. It's fine. Even if you beat them back, you're going to have bragging rights for maybe one or two minutes and you're done. It's just, yes. it's not worth it. But they could have not raced. They could have made sure that they were on a stabilized approach. But more importantly, it's possible they missed an item on the checklist because they were hurrying or if they were going faster than they should have been. Yes. Maybe they ran out of time. Maybe they didn't have time. And because of that, that's why they went faster. Maybe they missed something. And no, the other guy didn't catch it because they were going so quickly. It, it, it's hard to tell. But if you're ever in that situation where you can't even get a checklist done, and you feel the hair stand up on the back of your neck, anything like that, that's a good time to just say, you know what? I don't need to be in this situation. Let's talk to ATC. Let's get a vector back and try this again. Exactly. You know, many companies have instituted a no-fault go-around policy, and that's exactly for this for this reason. If they, things don't look good, like you know, Tim said, the hair is standing up in the back of your neck, you know, go around you know, execute the go around exactly like you just briefed it and, uh, you know, try it again or maybe go to your alternate airport, whatever needs to be done, but don't push the plane onto the ground. It's not going to like it. In right. this particular case, the aircraft is landing with a quartering tailwind, which actually exceeded the aircraft's limitations. So which there's probably a 10 knots. Most of these airplanes I've flown, the, the, the G100, G two hundred, they have a ten knot uh talent component for landing. 
Yeah, it's the same as us, 10, 10 knots. Um, that doesn't sound like very much, but when you truly, when you truly have a tail, a tailwind happening, um, hopefully your numbers are going to be, you know, correct and that you've done due diligence and if you put everything into the FMS and, you know, you've accounted for that tailwind, that kind of thing. But I guess what we're trying to get at is, is that, you know, stabilized approaches are extremely important. They can lead into some, some bad situations, uh, like this very unfortunate, I, 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 you know, can you imagine Tim looking back and seeing your aircraft in the swamp? Like, no. well, what's even worse is looking, looking at it, thinking I just lost my career because I tried to race another airplane and win. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. what they, that's what they won. It's unfortunate. I hope they don't lose their career, either of them, but that's a tough one. Yes. Um, and, and unfortunately, Tim, this is not the only example. This is a, no. a recent one. There was another one, um, with an, another, um, it was a Cessna product that was landing in, uh, an airport. And, and as a matter of fact, um, there was the injuries in that one. And thankfully there wasn't any in this one, but, uh, really, really bad, um, situations can occur if you're not observing a stabilized approach, it can lead into, you know, going off the end of the runway, losing control. Um, you know, it just, it just goes on and on. And so don't be that guy. No, don't be that guy. And also it's easy to want to showboat. Maybe you're empty thinking, oh, I can just whip this airplane around, do whatever. I honestly can say I used to do that stuff because yes, it's fun, but now I'm a little bit older, a little bit more flight time. I don't do that stuff. I fly the airplane the same, whether I have passengers or not. It doesn't, it does not matter. Just I fly it the same. I follow procedure. And if you do it the same way every time like that, I think it makes the job a little bit easier because you know what to expect. You know what the airplane's doing. If it's not doing something right. And if anything happens, well, you're following procedure. Yes, exactly. You know, you and I work in a very, very professional job and we're constantly being uh, looked at by other pilots and uh, our passengers to perform our duties as professional as possible. And part of that is is uh, always observing stabilized approach criteria. Again, if it doesn't look good and, you know... If if you look over the other guy and he's uh, not very happy, there there's could be a reason and maybe uh, just hit that go around button and talk about it later kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And even a go around, if you do one, you both don't have to agree on it. If one person sees something and says go around, what do you do? Do you go around or do you continue? You go around. Yep. You don't know what the other person is seeing or experiencing. You just don't, and you may be focused on something else and you, you don't see, you know, maybe there's a hazard that you don't see and, you know, you're not going to sit there and argue about it. And it's a standard operating procedure at every company that I've ever worked at is you don't, you don't argue about it. It's just right. go around and, and figure it out. So to stay, on, later. to stay on track with stabilized approaches, mm -hmm. uh, we mentioned what they are. Um, there are some tips on how to maintain a stabilized approach. One thing you can do if there's a Vassy or a Pappy, always follow it. But another thing that I do, if I'm at an unfamiliar airport, it might be 
VFR conditions, severe clear, I will still do an approach. Absolutely. And the reason for that is, like, especially in ILS, because I get a glide slope, we can also do an um, RNAV approach or a GPS-based approach. We get glide path information off of that, and that will also help keep us clear up terrain. Yeah, so that's another good another good practice. If there's an if your instrument obviously if your instrument rated, then there's an approach, fly it. And I do it. I have I have no problem not doing it. Um, even in our FMSs. Uh, you and I both operate um, Collins FMSs. Mm-hmm. If you even put in a visual approach, what do you get? You get a glide path. You get a glide path. You can couple it if you want. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, but I guess what we're trying to get at is, you know, doing it old school and, you know, visual approach into an un- unfamiliar airport, you know, you're asking for it. And um, unfortunately, there's been some uh, really significant events uh, the one i'm thinking about which is very very significant was in san francisco with an airline i won't mention and um you know they lined up on a taxiway oh and yeah had to be completely averted by flying uh, a, a localizer as a backup mm-hmm. just back it up fly yep. the localizer and keep it in the center that would have yeah. that would have uh, definitely uh, been very, very important. What a better way to mitigate that that problem. And they were very close to other aircraft sitting on that taxiway. Uh, yeah. It, very it, close. It would, it would have been the worst disaster that you possibly could have imagined. Um, probably worse than what happened in Tenerife years ago, yes. which is horrible. That one was really bad. Yes. So do you have anything else to add on stabilized approaches or anything else you want to add in general? Uh, you know, I just wanted to say, um, being a former Arctic pilot, I flew a lot of approaches into very windy, gusty conditions up in the Arctic into fjords and, and that kind of thing. And, you know, it just became, um, part of the culture that if things didn't look good, we, we went around and we talked about it later. Um, always know what your standard operating procedures are for your company. Um, if, you know, if, if they say, don't exceed a thousand feet per minute on the approach and you're, you need to do that because you've been caught high or whatever it is, then brief it to the other pilot and make sure that they're okay with it and make sure that you're following, you know, all the things that we talked about, you know, as far as V ref and, and everything, um, or your approach speed and yeah, or your, or your approach speed, you know, if it's 70 knots and a 172 and. You know, you, you all of a sudden you feel like you've got a tailwind, you know, too much behind you or whatever it may be. If it doesn't feel right, it isn't probably right. You know, go around and and think about it later or go to an alternate. So, um, yeah, and if you're, I'm not going to sing it, but you know, oh, there's one. <laughs> I won't sing because it's pretty bad. The song that uh, you're singing, uh, the the singing oh. part, but. Okay. Uh, but but the the theme of that song is you can always go around and you should uh, yeah go around is not a bad thing if you're not very familiar with stabilized approaches say you're learning to fly that's something that is good to sit down with your instructor and talk about stabilized approaches if they haven't already hopefully they do when I learned to fly and Robbie you can probably back this up was stabilized approach even really a thing that people talked about. Not really. It's no, kind of it a wasn't. buzzword. It's a buzzword for the last five years kind of thing. And Yeah. But it has merit. It, it really does. It's not just a buzzword. It, it has merit. And the accident we talked about or incident, 
there's plenty of cases where stabilized approach and recognizing an unstabilized approach and going around and would have fixed or prevented a lot of these accidents and incidents. Yes. You know, there's, when you're flying is an evolving thing. Um, You know, when I was teaching IFR, I had students that were locked into, you know, this is exactly what we're going to do for the mission. And that's just not the way things are in real life. Things are constantly changing. You get runway changes. If you look at um, some of the FAA documentation and other stuff around the world, um, you know, runway changes are a really big deal. Um, you know, there's there's so many things that have to happen in your FMS and and all of that to make uh, a runway change happen, which could leave you high, and you know, it could it could leave you into a situation where you're not prepared to do the approach. So, you know, don't be afraid afraid to let the controller know that you're not ready, and maybe you need some vectors or whatever it may be. Give yourself some time. Don't rush things. Um, specifically, if you're doing a check ride um, and you know you're getting pushed into a runway change or whatever it is, give yourself some time. Ask for vectors, and if not, go around. Has there ever been a time? I know as we wrap this up, we do, as we talk about stabilized approaches. Do you have a story of an approach real quick that maybe you've done that was unstabilized that you think, oh, I, sh- I shouldn't have done that and you should have gone around and tried again? Uh, I would say I definitely had them back uh, prior to my jet days um, because I was in the airline environment. You know, they, it's just something that wasn't going to be tolerated. But I, I remember, you know, trying to get a 172 onto the ground on a 3,000 foot strip and, you know, probably... Were you high? I, I was high, got fast, and, you know, I, I got very, very good at slipping airplanes. As a former glider pilot, I'm very, very good at doing that. Side slip, uh, forward slip, that kind of thing. When, you know, maybe sometimes it's just best to go around and and uh, if if you don't see the picture that you want to see in front of you, you know that's 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 a really important thing is seeing the picture of of the approach the way you want it to. If you too high in the approach, you know it's completely different in in a piston engine aircraft. But yeah, and I have one where I talking about being too high on approach. Yeah, I'll sh- quickly share a story that I had. I was flying single pilot in a four twenty one. It was IFR. The controller had turned me to intercept the final approach course. They said maintain 3,000 till established, cleared ILS, whatever it was, runway 18 uh, right. I maintained the altitude and I was busy. I don't know what I did. This has been over 20 years ago, probably close to 25 years ago. And when I looked down, the glide slope deviation indicator was pegged all the way at the bottom of the instrument. Mm. And what should you do in that situation? Well, I mean, that indicates that you're extremely high. Extremely high. Uh, what do you... So in that situation, you are completely out of the parameters. Everything is pegged. You've got to do yes. a go around at that point. Yeah. There's no choice. And what do you think a young pilot, at, I was maybe 23 at the time, what do you think a 23-year-old pilot with 2,000 hours did? Well, young Tim may have been looking at it and said, I can make this happen, and... Push the nose down and tried to catch that needle. That's exactly what I did. I caught it, 
But old Tim that's in his mid-40s and <laughs> over 8,000 hours would say, heck no, I'm not doing that. That's stupid. I'm just yeah. going to contact ATC, say, hey, go and missed approach exactly. and get vectors back, try it again. And chances are it would have worked out perfectly on the second attempt and it would have been a stabilized approach. Because if you come in diving down to catch that glide slope, chances are I'm going to come in a lot faster also. And I'm probably possibly not going to get slowed down uh, to the approach speed by the time it's time to touch down. And when that happens, you land fast. Yes. And it may have been raining that day. I don't remember, but the landing distance increases greatly. But um, I guess by saying this part, telling these stories are just showing that, hey, we've made mistakes. Yes. You will too. Know when you're making a mistake, fix it right away. And... It's just, it's just part of the learning process. I mean, we've both been flying for quite a while and uh, mistakes are made. They, they still, we both still make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So that's a great story. Um, that's, I think that's wise Tim coming in yes. there now. Yeah. I'm not going to be writing it. It is, it's an okay story. I'm not going to be putting that down and selling books anytime soon. It works okay for a short segment on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. But that's all we have. If you want more information on stabilized approaches, we'll put some links in the show notes. The Federal Aviation Administration's uh, safety team, they have some information on stabilized approaches. You can also just do a Google search for stabilized approaches. There's tons of information out there. Uh, Looking at a pamphlet that I have in front of me, Advisory Circular 91-79 Alpha has information, but a quick Google search will... Uh, give lots and lots of information on stabilized approaches. It is a buzzword, uh, was a buzzword, but it does have its merits and uh, it's something that everybody should be familiar with. It does. And if uh, if anyone has questions about this, um, you know, drop us um, uh, some questions in our Discord channel, which we've mentioned before, you know, the Corporate Pilot Guys podcast discord channel there's there will be a link in the show notes and uh, you can send us a good old-fashioned email at the corporate pilot guys podcast at gmail.com and i can't think of anything else tim but uh that's all i have and that's all i have and with that thank you everybody for listening and we'll catch you in the next episode have a wonderful week everybody take care